As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today, I think this is an apt description for my guest, who I believe is making his debut appearance. I'm going to say the man, the myth, the legend. It's Heath Pierce. Heath, thank you so much for taking the time. I, I, I'm. Thank you for having me. First of all, second of all, I, I was waiting to say like the apt description. I was going to be like, oh man, like what's he going to say? Like I was waiting <laughs> for this whole thing. I was going to be like, you know loser you know poser uh whatever so the fact that you went in a positive light i appreciate that how are you yeah I, i'm doing i'm doing well or as good as i guess anybody can be in the uh the present world we live in but it's it's always nice to talk soccer with a former national team player who can still ball i learned that last time we were in orlando together i think that's the thing that made me sort of like uh you stand out as being the the mythical figure because he just showed up to a pickup game and uh is very very good and then i think Stu holden showed up at the very very end to i feel like wait for everybody to be tired and then try to run the game but even then you held your own so that was that was a credit to you but it's always nice to see you at different events obviously we haven't been able to do as much of that lately so it's nice to be able to talk to you about the national team champions league your podcast many many different topics we're going to get to today yeah can i just say also it is really hard uh like the pickup soccer world or the amateur Mm -hmm. sports world is a really difficult world to navigate in terms of like how hard is everyone going to try because like i know bobby warshaw is going to try as hard as he can in every game no matter what if it's a pickup game i don't (laughs) i don't have like I'm, I'm probably the same in the fact that like I don't have like a middle ground of like let's compete, and I'm, I'm getting better at it now in my, in my post life, uh, post playing career uh, life. It's like you know I'm getting better at like being like okay, this is a situation where I can compete in. This is one where I'm just gonna have fun and like getting better at like understanding because there's some other sports that I'm, I'm learning to play now where I'm like you know kill kill kill, uh, and and then I like take a step back and go like. Was this the right environment for me to be this intense? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's you know, going back to that game in Orlando, I was like, you know, you're, you feel it out, especially when there's a bunch of people you never played with. You're like, how serious is this? Yeah, it, it's always it's why pickup can be a challenge, because I usually like Richmond has some pretty good leagues. That's where we're based. That's where 
uh, I tend to play. And those are pretty organized. Some are indoor, some are outdoor, but you've got officials. You've got kind of like the, the, the normal rules with pickup. You never know who's going to show up, how many people are going to be uh, cherry picking and all that type of thing. So it can be a, a, it's a difficult balance to strike, especially if you like go hard in those first five minutes and score a goal or two. And then you're like, maybe, maybe I've gone too far with this one and then you back off too much it's it's a difficult balance to walk i feel like you walked it well at least in that one pickup performance yeah and then there's the, the second part is like i don't want to get injured either like i'm here for a workout I'm, I'm here for a workout i'm here to hang out everybody's having a good time uh some take the edge off but at the same time like you know if someone runs past you you're like well that's not gonna happen again like i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> not let that person go past me and it's a really hard, it's just a really hard thing to navigate at any time like not just from my background from anybody's of like feeling out a new group and and uh you know trying to mix like we're here to have a good time we're here to have fun you know and then here to get a workout but also like you don't want to lose to the other team absolutely not and never did you say uh, other sports had filled the competitive void have you started picking up other sports yeah, just in the last year, obviously, um, you know, I used to play in a pickup game with Stu Holden. When I was in New York, I was playing in the Bowery League with a bunch of, you know, ex, ex-pro players that worked at MLS or other capacities that lived around around the city. And that sort of that sort of checked the boxes that I need once or twice a week. One of them was a training session, one of them, you know, where you could sort of do all the fun things from training and none of the bad things that we had during our careers. And then the second one was like just the game on on the weekend or something like that with those guys. And then when I moved to California, same sort of thing, like, you know, Stu Holden, Steve Nash, a bunch of these guys that live out here, Mario Melchiad, a bunch of just like former pros that would get together and play kind of small sided on small goals, like a little ticky talky. That was fine. And then obviously pandemic starts and I, I just, you know, there were still some of those games happening occasionally. I was, I had a wife that was pregnant with our third. Now we have our third during that period. And I just wasn't comfortable being in those, still not really comfortable um, in those environments. So I was like, what, what can I do? And I actually heard this stat um, this weekend was during this pandemic, t- there's been 20 million new tennis players because of the safe social distancing aspect of tennis. So that's one of the things that I started playing. And then beach tennis is the other one, which is more, like it's hard to explain, but take like six foot high nets that look like volleyball nets, lines that are similar size to a volleyball court, but you're using a paddle that's smaller than a, a, a tennis racket, but like say the size of a racquetball or squash racket, but it's a paddle like gripped like a tennis grip. Um, and you're playing with like sort of junior type of tennis balls where it's rallying over ball has to go over each time. That's been probably my favorite sport to play. Uh, I actually start. I got invited out to play with the Galaxy Group, uh, the guys from the Galaxy last year uh, that were around, Brendan Hannon and a bunch of others who invited me out. Hey, come out here and do this. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, and that's been the thing that sort of kept me going uh, outside of like when they closed the beaches here for some months where I was just working out in my garage. That's been sort of my escape and almost become a part of my lifestyle and needing to sort of let some tension out of being home all the time and and especially with the, with a big family at home all the time mm-hmm. that that makes a lot of sense to me prior to your uh beach tennis career obviously you were a professional player a national team player uh i did an episode of our other show soccer 101 last week about the places where the u.s men's national team tends to struggle costa rica being the biggest one uh, you had i believe 35 appearances for the national team including a few games on the road i don't think you ever played in costa rica but i am wondering what the most hostile atmosphere you ever experienced was with the national team? Um, man, there was, uh, I'm trying to think of where there was uh, Guatemala, Honduras, Panama. Um, I remember being 
um, part of like the 23 for uh, like kind of in camp for Costa Rica when they played it at Saprissa. And when we lost three nil during my sort of qualifying uh, period. And I remember we were in a, like a box, like a, like what people in the U S would refer to as like luxury suites. Right. But they're not luxury there. They're, they're, they're not. And in fact, you're very close to everyone else in the stadium and, and we were watching it from there and everyone knew we were in that. So when we were getting scored on, we were getting yelled at, laughed at, <laughs> screamed at, like the stadium was shaking. But yeah, those were those were pretty hostile environments. I think also like from a club career, St. Pauli was a pretty, pretty hostile environment to play at. Um, really? All right. My home stadium in, in the Bundesliga with, with Hansa Rostock was a really hostile stadium, both when you were when we when you were losing, especially like the fans were terrifying. Um but yeah, from the national team standpoint, I would say those ones, I think, uh, confederate. Um, also, uh, Gold Cup final against Mexico was a really hostile environment. We were playing very far from home, even though it was at uh, Giant Stadium. So there's a number of ones for, for different reasons where you feel very, very far from home. And you can feel that there is an edge in the air in terms of like one personal safety. I was talking about this the other day from those environments, and, and, and I'll be sort of brief with the answer is like you go into a fight or flight mode uh, in some of these countries and environments. I've now gotten a chance to go back and and tell stories and do documentaries and do um, broadcast work in, in a lot of these stadiums in, in, in CONCACAF. And there isn't, there is a, there is a, a, a feeling of just like danger and fear that your body uh, naturally responds to in these environments that aren't just about like, oh, this team is going to be tough to beat because they're playing at home and you never know if the pitch is going to be good and you never know the humidity or the referees and those factors. There's also this factor of just general fear when you look around and see that what you are used to seeing as like giant security signs on someone's back, that person says security and they've also got an AK-47 or they've got an AR-15 or they've got like double Glock handguns on their hips and you're like, why would they, you know? And Eddie Pope said this on on when when I interviewed him recently was like, why would they need that? And and I was thinking about sort of the the, the feeling that that brings to you is just a general fear. Um, I mean, and, and and police carry those types of weapons in in in, in Central American countries regularly anyway, but because um, some of them are like sort of military police. But yeah, it was it, it's it's it can be fearful in the sense of intimidating, and then there's just a, a actual fear that you have that you have to sort of come compartmentalized to get a result were there players that you remember playing with who either handled that particularly well or helped other people handle it well because i can imagine to your point if you're in like stranger in a strange land a situation where security personnel have guns everywhere fire alarms are being set off in the middle of the night i imagine it would be hard to feel normal to feel balanced and to feel sort of mentally prepared for a game so what were the steps that you all would have to take to sort of make sure that you were like up and at it and ready to go for a game? And were there people in the squad who maybe handled that better than others? Yeah. So, you know, there, there's all these like anecdotes about these types of things. When we were in South Africa for Confederations Cup, uh, a car had gotten into our, our entourage, right? And, and the entourage, depending on the country and the risk, could be anything from a police escort in front and a police escort to behind to when we played in Copa America and you had 20 motorcycle cops in front, 20 behind, you had SWAT team in front of your bus, SWAT team behind in a helicopter above. And that was during peak like George Bush, uh, Chavez, like tension era during whatever where we do like a regen session and there'd be 
we'd be swimming in the pool, like blowing uh, fountains with the water and doing fountains with your, you know, with your mouth blowing water. And there's like nine guys standing around the pool with AK-47s. And you're like, why do we, why do we, why do we need this? Um, but yeah, in South Africa, uh, for example, we didn't know about any of this, uh, but they got into our entourage and they got in past the gate to the hotel. And apparently this is based on one of the security personnel retelling me the story is they all, they pulled into his parking spot. They opened the doors all at the same time. They all came in the hotel. They didn't speak English and they did speak English. They were all from different countries and they were from the same countries and they were basically casing this joint. Um, and, and they found a laminated map in the back of their car, in the trunk of the car, which is usually an indicator of some sort of something. Um, and, and, and I started asking the security personnel, like, how do I deal with this? Like, how do I actually not think about this? And he's like, well, look, if there was going to be a proper attack of some kind and not to make the super dark, if somebody wanted to shoot a missile, they're going to, they're going to shoot it and there's nothing you can do. But it's it's the security's job is to be able to point out sort of red flags in, in these types of things. So in this case, there was like a six car entourage um, of like police escorts and whatever. And this car has, was able to, you know, change lanes because it's not like you're blocking roads like we were in Venezuela. Like you're just sort of cruising past traffic. And so people lane changing could get in and get back out of these these kind of lines of, of, of security. And they had gotten into the hotel and they were like, well, they, they, they didn't have any they weren't planning on doing anything. But they were planning what it seemed like testing the security of uh, the U.S. They also had gotten into the Italian hotel as well, tried to, and couldn't get in past the gates, the same, these same people, and really seeing how they could, like, infiltrate. And that was more from, like, a terror level. Um, but, yeah, most of the time there were times we played in games where you would say – they would say, like, all right, guys – Let's get in, smash and grab, and as soon as that final whistle happens, run back to the locker room. And that's what we did. Like I remember playing Guatemala and getting hit with like coins and lighters and all kinds of stuff. And and um, as soon as it was just gifts, Heath, they just wanted you to have gifts. Yeah, I, I you know exactly. It was like it was like an encore type of thing, you know, like people were throwing <laughs> stuff on there and like um, and whatever. But I remember specifically that being my first experience of that, and it happened multiple times where you know you have the umbrellas that have to basically escort you from the bus to the to the building, and it might be eight steps, but you know people are just throwing anything they can throw, um, and I remember it just sort of people. Nobody really specifically, but it was more of just like the guys who had been through it before. Right. And and now we go on and tell these stories to the next generation, like of like, Hey, this is what to expect, but you can't prep anybody for that, like fight or flight feeling, right. You can't prep anybody for what you're about to experience of, of what your reaction is when you see, uh, the, the, you know, canines and, and AK 47s being the around you on what is otherwise supposed to be this beautiful sport, right? Like you don't, there's no, way that I can be like, Hey, you're going to feel something there. And you understand that until you actually do it. So most guys who had just been through it, were just like, Hey, stay calm, block all this stuff out. Don't get caught up in the drama. Don't make that first foul that allows the fans to get into the game. Like all the things of like control what you can control. I'm always interested in like the things that are particularly difficult that like fans or people watching on TV won't know about, won't experience. Is that one of the hardest things about playing for the national team? Like having to deal with the hostile crowds on the road? Um, and like, Or like, are there other things that you found more challenging than that? Because I think I always assumed it would just be like, oh, it's nice to see your friends who you haven't seen in a while. They're playing in different locations around the country. But it also occurs to me that national team training camp would probably be pretty demanding, pretty rigorous, pretty competitive. So I'm assuming that also has its downside as well. Yeah, I would say that 
the hostile environments are where you really get tested as to the intensity of your group, right? And how close that group is. We saw that in the failures of 2018, that during my qualifying era, there was always this familial sense of like getting called into the national team is always an honor, period. But most of us were playing around the world and this was a chance to go. Like I, when I was playing in what is formerly East Germany, like I was alone, whether I was playing on the weekend or not, I was alone to figure it all out. I didn't have family there. I didn't really have a whole lot of friends. And this was an opportunity to get together. And that helped build a really a real sense of trust uh, with our group. And also that experience of knowing that like, hey, it's not going to be pretty on the road. Um, so that that played into it as as well. Um, but in terms of like the intensity in our group, it was it was always a highly intense environment, but it was different because you were moving in, in a in a collective direction, right? You weren't competing you were competing, but you weren't competing to take somebody's spot in the national team. That was usually your club environment. That was maybe the one or two intense trainings that you had leading up to a game, whether it was a single fixture or a double fixture um, week. It was more of like being part of a group or a team and part of something bigger than yourself. And it sounds super cheesy, but that's, that's the way that it was. So the intensity was like understanding that you were going to have to lock into a mentality when you're going to CONCACAF and know that like I might get beat on the dribble or somebody might get around me. And I need to know that in most cases, Carlos Bocanegra was going to be there to make the play. And if somebody got over the top and beat him for pace, then I was going to be the next one to, to, to get back and make that play for him and sort of tapping into that. Like I need to do my job and also be ready to, to, to support the person around me. And that's a, it sounds easy, but it's actually really challenging. Um, and that takes a lot of time and in, 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 in team building, um, which I think is the epitome of, of, of playing for the U.S. national team, or it was during that period. And I think we're starting to see that again with this new group. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. I want to ask about the new group uh, in a moment. I have one more question about your experiences with the national team in camps. Um, like You mentioned playing pickup with Bobby uh, earlier. And Bobby, for me at least, uh, because he is way better than I am, is a player who I think of as just being like very tidy. Like he, he doesn't lose the ball very much. He keeps the ball moving. He knows where to be. He knows the space to find. And, I, and I, I always appreciate players like that who are just sort of, you don't see them make a lot of mistakes in training. They're not, you know, like shooting wide by a mile. They're not getting skinned every single time. Was there a player with the national team that you remember having that level of just efficiency that they're always kind of consistently quality across the board in training, in games, maybe less so in games, because I know that's a harder one to evaluate. But in training, especially, is there a person that you remember being just especially consistent? Steve Trundolo was probably the most consistent guy that I remember. Um, He was one that 
he was one that I went to with a lot of advice. Obviously, I went to Germany uh, after after being in Denmark, and he had been there for you know seven eight years at that point, and kind of asking him like how do, how do you do it? Like how do you you know how do you do it every single day the exact same like the same level of intensity, same level of intelligence? Because look, there are some days that your brain is very tired going to training. There are some days that your legs are very tired going to training, and to create consistency. Day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year for an entire career requires a level of savvy uh, because it's not just a matter of like showing up every day and giving your best because like sometimes your best is 70%. So how do you make sure that you can blend into that environment and not stand out as poor? That's a, that's a skill that you learn, right? How do when things aren't going right to just sort of do your job and not try to do more, especially when you're on the younger side, he was, he was one that just always knew regardless of how he felt, regardless of the form he was in, you would have never thought he was out of form. And that's really a huge challenge because like anything, you wake up in the morning, you got a headache, right? You wake up in the morning, your leg hurts. You, you're, you know, mm-hmm. people talk about like, Oh, we finally got a fully fit team from the first week of every season. You do not have a fully fit team. You have a bunch of people ranging from 70 to 99% fully fit, right? In terms of, physical exhaustion, mental exhaustion, emotional exhaustion of life, right? Like it's just like anything, any job or anything you do, if you had to do the exact same thing um, at the highest intensity you've ever done it, like it's just not possible. So it's a lot about learning that game. And Steve was one um, that always did that. And Clint Dempsey was one that just brought the intensity day in and day out. And like somebody who I always envied in terms of his energy of like, he will elbow you in the face in training as a teammate and not in a malicious way. He's just that competitive and that's where he would find his edge. And somebody that I wish that like, I wish when I was a child or as a young adult, I had tapped or learned to tap into just kicking somebody, like go up and kick them. And then from there that sets the tone. And I just never was able to tap into that killer mentality that, that, that somebody like Clint had um, that I think could have been in more, it could have helped my career in, in a lot of ways. Other players in the current pool that you think maybe do have that instinct, do have that that tenacity about them? Absolutely. Uh, I think there's a large portion of them that have that now uh, because they're all in environments where, you know, Mark McKenzie, who I talked to the most from that group, obviously, mm-hmm. and he realized it quick that, like, you're going to an environment where somebody sees you as, a, as an existential threat to their career. Um, whether you're in the same position, whether you there's envy there, whether they think you got some big contract or whether they think that you're more privileged than them. Like th- being in those environments, like Weston McKinney is getting kicked on a daily basis. So he has to learn to kick. Tyler Adams is getting kicked on a daily basis. Uh, Tim Weah being an attacker, uh, Christian Pulisic, all of these guys have to have, you You, you look at sometimes, um, actually the best example of this is, is um, Gio Reyna right now. If you watch his body language change throughout a game when he gets angry, um, he will kick somebody. He will swipe somebody down. You can see that he taps into something different. So I think a large portion of this group have that uh, intensity along with the skill, which is sort of the special, you know, some uh, ingredients of, of the special sauce needed to not just get a chance at Dortmund, right? Not just get a year at Roma like a Michael Bradley, um, but – do a decade at Aroma, do a decade at a Juventus, do a decade at a Dortmund uh, and even bigger where the default is a Dortmund, right? Um, where you fall back to being like, oh, this is the type of player he is, as opposed to it being the peak of the player we are. And so I think all of these players have that now because they're in their early 20s or late teens. 
and they're and they're and they're surviving and sometimes thriving in some of the biggest clubs and toughest environments in the world. So we've got more players in the pool with more of that mentality playing at a higher level with like bigger name clubs. And yet I think the question kind of remains for a lot of people is is going back to your earlier point about when you're with the national team, you're on the road, you're in hostile environments, it tests you, it sort of brings you together, it brings about a, a fight, a tenacity that you have to have to be able to compete. And I think because of the failure to qualify, there is still that fear. And obviously the failure to qualify for the Olympics as well. There's a fear amongst the fan base that what happens when they do get punched in the face? What happens when there is that sort of difficult setting with everything you've said about the current pool? Do you feel like they are more tested? Do you have more confidence in them this time around with qualifying? Do you feel like they'll be able to better handle those sort of obstacles on the road? I think they have the right, toolkit to do so, but I don't Uh think you are CONCACAF tested until you are CONCACAF tested. You like all of those guys that I just mentioned are playing at big clubs where a loss is considered a failure, right? A loss is a very stressful environment. um, And winning trophies is the only thing that matters, right? Like Dortmund are on 10 losses in the league this season. That is an absolute failure for a Dortmund, right? The, the, the four teams in front of them have, I think, max like four losses. That is not what, that is a characteristic of, of, um, of a Dortmund. And Gio Reyna, who is a teenager, is going to feel that every single day in training, right? That, that pressure, that intensity, that, that lack of control that, you know, not only is it about playing your best yourself, but now you've got all these people around you that have to play their best and are expected to play their best to beat the other team. So in terms of like, we have the most potential to do well in CONCACAF, but like you said, it's, it, nothing matters until they get punched in the mouth. And when they get punched in the mouth, we will see what they're able to tap into. And I do think this team is more um, equipped, I think, to look at 22 and 26 as, as bigger successes as a world cup. But when it comes to qualifying, it's going to, you tap into something that is not going to be like, hey, let's go down to Costa Rica and play them off the pitch. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen in my lifetime. We're not going to get to a point of quality because it's not about quality there. It's not about quality. They will they will disrupt any quality that we have uh, and try to get under our skin and make it very difficult. And they have really good players um, as well that it, there is a fight that has to be. You know, we used to have pregame chats, right, for these games and so little of it, so much of it was about tactics, but so little of it was about how we were going to break down the other team in terms of like style of play from us. It was more of discipline, taking your chances, um, covering for each other, being uh, collective in our approach. Like those are different than skill sets. It wasn't like, let's find Landon the ball and let him spray the ball around and be the 10 and the playmaker and whatever. It was like, literally, we sit in our blocks, we play discipline, we stick to our game, we get our few chances, you get out of there with the result, you run to the locker room. That was pretty much a lot of the conversations. Of course, I'm I'm not underplaying Bruce or Bob or or Jurgen. There was just a matter-of-factness of of to what what matters of what, what you need to process before these games versus it being like, you know, outside backs, high and wide. And, you know, we had all those things as well. But the most important thing were what you were doing in that moment to get the result and less so about um, how we are going to play as a system of play or as a philosophical style of play that is uh, not only going to win, but is going to be, you know, uh, in line with 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 sort of our our roadmap of U.S. soccer. 
My read on Berhalter having with him having played in CONCACAF qualifying, been through it, is that he will be more inclined to prepare his players for those types of challenges. Not just here's what we want to do on a technical level or a tactical level, but here's how we're going to deal with this opponent who's going to be difficult, who's going to kick us. The grass is going to be long. The grass won't have been watered. Like, do you think he is going to be not necessarily more prepared because I'm not trying to throw shade at other coaches, but do you think that Greg Berhalter's past experiences sort of help him set this team up for success on the road? Yeah, I think every coach that's had to go into CONCACAF, you learn very quickly in one game of consequence, okay, this is what it is, whether you played in it or not. I think Greg's ability now will be able to say how you react to these adverse conditions or adversity when things aren't going well. You know, Bruce had been through it all a bunch of times. Um, you know, Bob has been through plenty of it in the region. Um, Jurgen as well by, by, by the end of his tenure. But I think, you know, one thing that Greg will have is that he's played in them. He knows what it's like when you've got, when you look up at the clock and you see, oh my gosh, I got 30 minutes left and I am exhausted. I got no energy left and they are just jamming this ball down our throat and it feels very hostile in here and, and we don't have the ball, something that we're used to and the pitch is terrible. Like he will know how to contextualize that, uh, when they are when they are facing that adversity, which I think is is, is a huge strength, right? To 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 because I think every coach can tell you what it's going to be like, but someone who's lived it can can literally contextualize like how to take a deep breath or how to get through moments or how to turn the game instead of ninety minutes into like increments of fifteen on when you're pressing high and when you're setting back and when you're judging the flow of the game and when you can taste uh, you know kind of blood in the water of like this is going to be our moment to score. Um, and if they open up like this or if they play like that, then this, I think, are, are definitely all strengths that he has because he's, he's a high-quality manager, but he's also, you know, has those experiences as, as, as being a player and being in these environments where, you know, more often than not, they, they got the result. But at times, they didn't. And, and you learn from those, right? Um, and I think it's, it's, it's a mix of all that that puts him in a unique position for, for CONCACAF especially. So we talked about the U.S. national team. Uh, I had a few other topics I wanted to get to, including uh, your podcast you're doing with Mark McKenzie, who you mentioned previously, the Orange Slices podcast. Uh, how did that come to be and how's it been so far? Well, I'll answer your second question first. It's, it's, it's been amazing so far, obviously. I think, you know, Mark and I and, and our, our wider Four Soccer Adventures team were kind of talking about, like, how do we, you know, I, I, I so I was the first ever um, – national team player to be part of uh, American Outlaws. So I was the first paying member to be in American Outlaws. I think our, our we were like the 13th or, or something like that group out of Modesto, California uh, or chapter. And I remember just being a fan of the game, right? I remember my earliest memories from my generation. It wasn't about club teams. I didn't have access to club teams. It was about the national team. That was it, right? That's who I looked up to. I looked up to Kobe Jones. I looked up to Alexi Lawless. I looked up to these guys my whole childhood and so as an adult and now in my postgrad I was like man there's there's it feels like there's been this loss of love along the way because of lack of results and a number of things and MLS markets get built up so a lot of those people who are the same channeled vision as as me in terms of fandom now have something in their backyard and and rightfully so right something that they can invest in and feel part of a community um as well so as that happened I was thinking about like man it should sure would be nice to uh, galvanize, uh, or at least try to help uh, galvanize this national team fan base. So we came up with the idea of Orange Slices, and it's more of a content franchise um, than it is uh, a, a podcast, where it's more about you know reconnecting. It's soccer nostalgia. It's soccer Americana. It's reconnecting the generations of past, present, and future national teams 
to really rally around this like connection point of, of, of soccer, right? Like we, we've all kind of have this scarlet letter of being soccer fans. If you've been one long enough of, you know, um, having to prove yourself and, 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 and prove something and that soccer has no history and coach, we have, we have over a hundred years history of soccer in the U S it's just our own. It's not England's. It's not Germany's. It's not Brazil's. It's not Mexico's. It's our own. Right. And it's a melting pot of cultures and, and, we're trying to embrace that into something cool, right? Of like what it was like that, that the whole idea of orange slices is that like, no matter what, we all remember that as a memory of like eating orange slices at halftime and, and, and that seemingly being some sort of important health thing for us as kids, um, you know, uh, and Capri Suns and these kinds of things where, you know, that, that it's trying to kind of sort of like tap into that nostalgia and think about the beautiful times and the beautiful history of our game in the U S especially around the national teams. And then looking towards this future, which we're obviously going to ride the coattails of the success of these, these young guys and trying to bring and rally that fan base and grow it again uh, for people to just uh, not think about 2018 failures or, 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 you know, our, our comparison of like where the men are at versus how, you know, incredible the women are and, and just make it more about like, Hey, this is an amazing thing. And, and, I know my memories of, of soccer growing up are very similar to a lot of people's that were born in the same generation as me. Um, and, and within, you know, X amount of years kind of share those same things of, you know, remembering snippets of, of world cup 94 and, and, you know, kind of, we're getting this era of like vintage and throwback and retro things. And I just think it's a really cool time to, 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 to bring people together um, around a, a, a shared theme. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Man, I hadn't really thought about the importance of Capri Sun because, you know, like my mom was uh, was like anti-sugar. So we never had those in the house. But after soccer, after the game, you got a Capri Sun. I feel like that was what kept me going with soccer early on because it wasn't very good. But it was the time when I would get the sugary drink. And so I was cool with it. So you're right. Capri Sun Orange Slice is fundamental to the growth of soccer in this country. Uh, so, too, is having uh, talented players uh, like, say, Timothy Wea, who I know you had on the show. Have you recovered from him uh, not extending the invite to sleep on his couch? Yeah, I was I was it's so funny. I was convinced that he was asking me to like, uh, you know, to ho- he was going to host me like so. But what he was trying to do is take my hosting job on the podcast. Yeah. And so I misunderstood it. I was like, oh, man, this guy's inviting me to stay at his house. This is amazing. You know, he's like, hey, if you ever need a host. And I took it as like, oh, yeah, you know, couch surfing. And he 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 was trying to basically say, if you ever need me to kick you off your show so him and Mark can be cool and make a much cooler podcast. And so I was like all positive about it, like excited. I'm going to go visit uh, Timothy Weah in, uh, in France just to find out that uh, I misread and misinterpreted the, the – uh, he was actually not inviting me to his house and he wanted to take my job on the podcast. So that was a little, little disappointing. And it, yeah, it was an ego hit. You know, it hurt a little bit, but uh, – but no, he was a, you know, he was a, he was a, a great guest. And all, hey, real quick on on Capri Suns, were you uh, were you uh, poking on the top or poking on the bottom kind of Capri Sun guy? I didn't even realize you could poke it on the bottom until later on in life. I was always like trying to get it in there, and then I think inevitably I would mess it up and stab myself or stab through, and it would be a whole ruptured situation. Yeah, like there was a real, real structural integrity issue of that straw, if you remember correctly. Yeah. Like you. The best thing you would do is get to an end of a game and know that you're going to get a Capri Sun. Because I didn't have any any soda growing up either um, or any sugary drinks growing up. Until, by the way, I, and I'll tell you this story after, um, my brother won a year supply of Coke doing the uh, 96 Olympics McDonald's uh, thing where you okay. got the McDonald's pieces. Right. And it just said, like, you win a year supply of Coke. So we got this coupon for, like, 52 coupons for 12-packs, um, which is I always wondered how they do that. I was like, they don't just drop off a pyramid of, of soda outside of your house. Okay, the coupon thing makes more sense. Yeah, and you had to pay like the, the, the redemption code on it. And I was living in, in Portland, Oregon at the time where you had to pay, I think it was like 10 cents a, a, a uh, can. So like you're spending a buck 20 on a, on, a, on, a, on a 12 pack. But yeah, a dangerous thing to have, especially for a house that, you know, we didn't, uh, we didn't uh, grow up with, with any of these, these drinks on and except for like at these games. And I, I, I do remember that being like you could go from the excitement of a of a uh, of a Capri Sun, depending on the flavor that you got, could really change things. And you know, as you got these like these variety twelve packs or whatever it is that the team would would have, to then if your straw broke, how bad that experience could be for you. Um, and that's why everybody went with just the. Eventually, the cool thing to do was like squeeze the squeeze the Capri Sun a little bit and then go with that hard one one stroke stab into the bottom of it to ensure that you're going to puncture and have a straw versus you know if you're trying to get it into that little tiny you know pre-created hole and you mess it up and your straw breaks like imagine dude imagine imagine what the rest of your day is like at that age you know yeah you could win 4-0, but if that happens, it, it's a failure. You're not wrong that when, the first time I learned that you could stab it from, like, the bottom side, it was the equivalent of, like, the monkeys in 2001 A Space Odyssey learning to use tools for the first time. It was this, like, aha moment that maybe did forever change me on a fundamental level. So I owe that to Capri Sun and to you for bringing that one back up. And now I, I, I need to bring about Capri Sun and all of my soccer playing, uh, such as it is these days. Did you ever, um, I have one more, one other question as a follow-up. Did yeah, you yeah. ever, uh, squeeze the, like a chip bag to make it pop? Was that a thing that you would do? 
that that feels like anarchy yeah. to me. That feels like chaos. You, that could go so wrong so quickly. Yeah, I mean, you you do run a high risk there, but like you know, I still struggle to open up certain like bags and boxes and things like that. Like I, I'm too lazy to get the scissors. I end up messing it up, and like I I think back to like those shared memories of like you know, when you'd open up the cereal box wrong and it, like the bag would just spill always. I still do the same thing. I haven't learned anything. Like I'm clearly not growing or learning uh, from these things, but that's the whole idea of the podcast. Like tap into these things that you don't even re- really remember. But as you go down this journey of like your childhood of sport um, and soccer and, you know, through, through the lens of the national team, you start to remember these random things that are like, Oh, make you remember like positive times because you get into real life and sometimes you get caught in the vortex of it all. And, and this, the whole idea is to just remember, remember the good times. The one I hadn't really thought about in a very long time, I think it's just because I've changed my, my buying patterns and maybe it still exists, is like the, uh, the milk cartons that required you to know origami to open mm-hmm. them where you had to like peel and pull and create a, a funnel. That, that didn't work so well for me. I'm very happy with the, uh, the ones now that just have like the screw top opening. This is not the way I expected this conversation to go, but I'm kind of cool. With yeah, look. The other thing that's hard, and it's the same now that I've got kids, is the goldfish, the the giant goldfish box. Oh yeah, it's, same it's thing. the origami. It's and it like I I go into it with this idea of like it's it's yep. it's me or it's this box, and there's not going to be both of us that come out of this thing you know alive because you start doing the bending back and forth, back and forth, just to get that tip that's that on the triangle that's pushed all the way in. You got to get that off. And if you pull it too hard, you rip the whole box. If you, if you don't pull it hard enough, it doesn't open. And you're sitting there going like, again, I am 36 years old. I, this, should, this should have been solved. Like we, we have I, iPads and iPhones and all kinds of crazy stuff. Why am I still having to fight with the goldfish box? That was the same fight of when I was like a, a, a preteen. Anyways, I rest my case. I'm triggered now. I appreciate this. So much. And I'm, I'm excited that this is the type of thing that people can look forward to uh, on the podcast when you're interviewing national team players, <laughs> which is a thing that I think like like the Timothy Way one is a good is a good example where there's there's informative stuff in there and you get a perspective on what it's like for him and what his club situation is like. But it's also like him and Mark McKenzie talking trash about who's faster. And I and I think that that's the drawback in my mind with doing like long form interviews consistently, especially with players, is that I feel like players are oftentimes coached how not to say things that are interesting because they don't want to say things that are inflammatory. And they're a little bit hesitant. And there is a vulnerability there if they could be burned really easily. So why give away your secrets? Why tell honest, honest perspective on things? And so having you a former player, having McKenzie a current player, I feel like that maybe brings about a little bit more vulnerability or a little bit more willingness to talk about random stuff on the mic than they would, honestly, with like even with our show. Like they're not going to come on and talk to us about Capri Sun, but they might with you all because I feel like there is a like a commonality, a shared experience there. Yeah, I, 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 I regret bringing up Capri Sun only because we've now mentioned it over 10 times and they're not paying for it. You know, I want you to get, I want you to be getting that check from them just for us to mention that name. <laughs> Uh, so many times, but time. yeah, but that, you know, for us, it was, it was about creating that safe sort of locker room space. And we've seen other podcasts in the past that have, that, that are currently going or, or had, had a good job of getting these anecdotes and stories and these guys to put their walls down. But that's why our angles mostly been about like, tell us a story, tell us something different. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. like, I don't want to know, well, I am curious about like Timothy way is like, competition within his team and like tactics and like where he's best and that sort of stuff. And, and, and I think I can find that in plenty of places. What I want to know is, is more of just like the, the human side, because 
you know, again, I, I, I've, I've told this story before, but like when I was roommates with Michael Bradley, he would go back and watch soccer all day long on his computer all day long, nonstop. That was what he did. That was his interest. You know, he watched movies and stuff occasionally, but like I would watch movies. I would go, this is where I need to be hyper-focused during training. I'm going to be hyper-focused during video sessions. Anytime that I'm on the job, I'm going to focus on it. And then I need to be able to get away. Right. And he processed it differently, right? He needed to be in it all the time for him to be at his best. And I think that's sort of the the angles that we're trying to find out as opposed to these interview type things where I ask a question and they answer and I'm like, okay, that's nonsense. And you're just saying that because that's what you've been told to say, or, you know, that's the safe answer. And, and we still have that in some, some of the guys that, that we talk to who aren't, you know, and, and that's partially on us and it's partially on their own comfort to, to, to be open about things. But yeah, it's, it's trying to get more, out of people, which is ultimately what led me to get into the media space is that somebody said to me very early on in my career, Hey, you give a good answer. You should think about this. And I was like, Oh, that was a nice compliment. And then really tried from that point on to be like, I don't want to give them the, you know, like the quarterback answer of like, you know, they couldn't have done this without the team and the team's great. And you know, the team, this, or like, you know, we're, we're going to get back and look at the tape and we'll do better next week type of thing. When give more and give some like energy and life and, and angles to things that give somebody some substance and, 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 and joy around the game, even in the tough times. And that's truly what's led me to, to, to where I am now. Um, but yeah, we're trying to sort of create that safe space for, for other people as well. Did Bradley have a team that he would usually watch? Was there one player he was keeping an eye on or was it just anything anywhere at any time? He watched a lot of soccer in general. Uh, there was a theme with Bob and Michael as well around like the '90s AC Milan teams. Um, the you know there was a, a an obsession yeah. with Gattuso um, and the way that he covered ground, the way that he could slow the game down, but the way that he would like kind of chop you in half if he had to in a tackle. Um, Trying to think what other what other teams uh, he would specifically watch. A lot of a lot of games around teams we were playing. Um, a lot of you know kind of big teams as well. Uh, I don't remember any other specific ones. I wish I did. That's a great question. I don't know the the Gattuso one stands out, especially because I feel like there's a commonality between the way he does press conferences and the way Bob Bradley occasionally does press conferences. <laughs> there's a feistiness. There. Yeah, there's a feistiness. Yeah, there. it's the it's the it's the um, beast mode. I'm only here so I don't get fined type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's Sevi Salazar and then he's yelling at exactly. him. Exactly. Uh, final couple questions I had for you uh, were about the Champions League, which comes back this week. We we are on to the next round. We've got Real Madrid hosting Liverpool on Tuesday, as well as Dortmund traveling to Man. City also on Tuesday, then Wednesday, Bayern, PSG, Porto, Chelsea. Uh, of those four fixtures, so we've got on, on the Tuesday, again, it's Madrid, Liverpool, Dortmund, City. Like There tends to be, for me, it's like the one game that I'm going to prioritize that I'm definitely going to pay attention to more. And then if that one is a dud, the other one's more exciting, then I'll switch. Is that how you are? Do you try to watch both at the same time? Yeah, I definitely like when there is a, a preference. When you get to this point, you're kind of like, you're kind of screwed, right? Like, yep. There's not a bad game because the implications, right? Real Madrid are, are I think, like four or five points out of the lead with Atletico Madrid this week uh, losing to Sevilla. The title race is back on for both them and Barcelona. So you're like, okay, that's an implication. Liverpool batter uh, Arsenal over the weekend and and now have Diego Jota back. The team seems to have shored up defensively where you're like, well, they might finish top, out of top four in the league. So this is their run for a Champions League spot potentially. And then the same goes for Dortmund where it's like they're out of a, a Champions League and Europa League spot at this point. Uh, but you get to watch 
uh, Holland against Man City, who are the best team in the world right now. And so it's like it's 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 hard to prioritize. And then if you're if you're a, like kind of a football purist, which I tend to lean towards, which is like I want to see young players. I want to see Gio Rena play against Manchester City, who have play a beautiful style of death by possession. Like I want to see those games, but then at the same time, the implications of Real Madrid versus Liverpool and what that means to their overall success of a, of a season um, is hard to, to, to skip away from. But if, if I had to pick one of those two games to tune into, I think I'm going to go Man City Dortmund. I think I, really? I, I, if Gio Reyna's playing for sure, there's no question. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that is the key part of it, yeah. right? Is that, yeah, if you've got the American in there, that kind of incentivizes a little bit. But as soon as like Tyler Adams isn't starting for Leipzig, that's when I was maybe switching to the other games that were on when they were still around. Yeah, that's that's fair. And I would say 100% if, if, if Gio Reyna's in the squad. But even outside of that, when you think about, uh, I guess, Jane Sancho's out too. But, um, you know, when, when when I think about just watching Holland and when I when I see them on the, the, the attack, and Dortmund have been quite disappointing in a lot of ways for the quality that they have and seem pretty slow uh, at times. But um, just watching Man City operate right now, like we're in an era where like the number nine is the least important person on your team where uh, the false nine and, and just sort of the fluid movement of really high quality players that you can't really uh, stop. It's, it's, it's impressive. And now that I say that maybe Real Madrid Liverpool is better. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, we got the re- the rematch of the 2018 final. Hopefully, Sergio Ramos, uh, if he is playing, isn't throwing uh, Mohamed Salah to the ground this time. But that, like that, I think is interesting to see. Is it like a revenge game? Because I don't really buy into the like, oh, like the last three times they met, these were the results. Yeah. And the last three times they met were like 1938, 1983, and 1992. It doesn't quite carry that significance as it's a lot of the same people. And maybe Mohamed Salah is a little bit pissed off and wants to get revenge. Yeah, there's certainly the element of like the last time they played in a game of consequence, right? I, I understand that. I think the bigger theme for me within these things is that what happens when Real Madrid goes out in the quarterfinals and they finish third in the league? What does that mean for Real Madrid, right? Um, Nothing good. Yeah, that is that is that is a failure of a season in the fact that like Atletico Madrid were were I think eight points, maybe ten points clear with a game in hand, uh, and at one point two games in hand in the league, and they've coughed all that up, and now they can sniff that there are opportunities here, but they're in the thick of it. Both with with um, I think Barcelona play today. I don't know if that like, match is kicked off or, or whatever when this comes out. Um, so sorry for for that. But um, it, they you know there is a lot of implications around them. And then Liverpool when when I saw uh, Jota score against against uh, Wolves a couple weeks ago and then score again had a brace this weekend. I was like, mm-hmm. do you remember like six months ago when we were talking about just the riches of attack? that Liverpool had when they brought in Jota, they spent it on this guy who was like a super sub at Wolves. Um, And you're like, oh, this is the team. This is the new Man City in the sense that like, I wouldn't be surprised if they go three years, four years straight winning, winning the league or winning Champions League year after year. Right. And it's all sort of come crashing down in a lot of ways. Um, They dispatched easily of, of RB Leipzig uh, for sure. But like Real Madrid's a different opponent and they're still, you know, Liverpool are still fragile, but they're now within I think it's like four points of, of top four in the league. So again, managing these types of things is, is what I really like to look into um, and sort of just play both sides of the coin of like, okay, they get knocked out of the of Champions League. What does that mean for the league? How do they respond? How do they react and all that sort of stuff? So those are, that's the way I try to look at it and less so like historic, historical yeah. um, matchup statistics. 
I like I like that way much more. Uh, and I would invite you to do the same for the Wednesday games, Bayern PSG, Porto Chelsea. Uh, Graham Ruffin and I on our weekend review were talking about that Bayern PSG game and how it it could be this like very interesting tactical game with uh, with very experienced, wise managers and very big talents. But it also Bayern at times looked a little bit leggy. They looked a little bit tired. Obviously, they've got plenty of injuries. PSG losing to Lille. Uh, and it was all Timothy Weah. Obviously, he's the entire reason why that happened. But it's also PSG maybe looking erratic, looking inconsistent, not being able to find a way through. And so this could be a really good game. It could also be, I think, a really sloppy game. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts or expectations for it. Yeah, obviously no uh, Bobby Lewandowski in this one, um, which is disappointing because you want to see him... Uh, they're at their best. Bayern, uh, surprisingly, have have needed all kinds of motivating factors to get results this year. They've come from be- I don't I don't know the statistic, but like they've come from behind to win games, or they've given up the first goal so many times this year. Uh, obviously, cruising in Champions League uh, that they're hard to predict if they're going to start off the game strong. And then if you you saw the Lille game over the weekend with with PSG. You know, uh, Neymar was Neymar had a bunch of clear chances, and I don't want to say a bunch. He had a few clear chances for Neymar standard that he would finish. Clearly, got frustrated, sent off at the end of the game, um, and you can just see kind of a out of formness to him. Yeah, he was beating people on the dribble, and he was doing Neymar type of things. Uh, but this was his first start back from injury, and he just sort of didn't look himself. And when you look at PSG's success while Neymar was out, and and Mbappe is the guy. Uh, he carries that team on his shoulders, no problem. And when Neymar's back in the fold, very similar what what I say, like sort of Griezmann when he got to Barcelona, of like, oh, you're, you're now the second or third person everybody looks to when they get the ball, um, differently than him being the guy at at uh, at uh, Atletico Madrid. It's just a completely different adjustment. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. He definitely doesn't look at his best uh, in terms of form because he would have finished those chances like. PSG should have beat Lil with the chances that they had um, or the clear chances that they had. Um, and they didn't. And they didn't even score. They lost 1-0, I think it was. So, um, yeah, it, it could be a, a very sloppy match. But I do hope that, you know, uh, with Bayern playing at home, um, that PSG will, will, will take some risks and, and, and try to do something uh, in this first leg. And the last game to be discussed, Porto-Chelsea. Porto, I would say, surprise uh, to be here, uh, having knocked out Juve. Chelsea, it seems like we'll be without Christian Pulisic, who subbed off at halftime this past weekend. Uh, any players or any things you're particularly looking forward to from this game? Yeah, this is, I mean, this one's a bit weird, right? Because Tuchel obviously got his first loss over the weekend in a 5-2, you know, down a man um, situation uh, that... It's not very indicative of the form that they've been in. They've been very, very solid uh, as a team. The hardest part now is you're continuing to tinker with these lineups at Chelsea, right? And you have all these guys that are young stars, whether whether it's Werner, Ziyech, uh, Mason Mount, Pulisic, you know, all these guys in, in the attack that, that you're having to constantly rotate and tinker with and try to find Tammy Abraham, like the right lineup. Um and now you're getting to the point of the season where, like, you kind of need to have your team. You need to have the team that you're going to go with, right? And and they, people were surprised that that um, Giroud didn't start uh, at times. And then when he starts, people are like, why is he starting? And so there's this constant, like, evolution of, like, who's the right team? And you re- you really need to have your best team from, from this stretch of the season if they're going to finish in the Champions League spot and, and obviously try to win 
trophies this year against the Porto team who obviously looked like they were going to give up. Like they were, or at least the universe was trying to hand, hand Juventus uh, the games in the last round um, and were able to sneak through and are, are just a difficult team to play against. They're just a mature team that's not going to give you much. So this is the one that I think is probably going to be the most boring, um, if you can say that in the quarterfinals uh, of, a, of a Champions yeah. League. But you but for, you know, you can change the language of that and say it's going to be the most uh, tactical. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> you know, for the people that would rather watch chess than speed checkers, this is your game, you know, to see uh, where the, the, the moments open up and who becomes vulnerable and all the things you want to do to convince yourself of why you should watch this. But yeah, the the interesting thing is, is like Chelsea is for both Porto and Chelsea. It's the most, Oh, maybe, maybe more so for Chelsea. It's the most favorable, um, of, uh, of draws. Uh, having said that, you know, I look at, you know, Man City is probably happy about Dortmund as well, but like, you know, there's enough star power on Dortmund that I'm like, Dortmund could punish you, um, on any given day. And they have, right. Um, plenty of teams. So yeah, it's the one where I think it's, it's a pretty favorable draw for each of these teams to feel like, Oh, I like my chances um, versus the other ones where it's like, we have no idea who's going to go through. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I thought Dortmund were going to be out after the, when they drew Sevilla, but here they are still in the competition. So yeah, any, anything can happen. Some games will be speed chess. Some games will be speed checkers and some games will be something in between. But uh, Heath Pierce, I really appreciate you talking Champions League, U.S. Men's National Team, Capri Sun, even though they're not paying us. Many, many other topics we discussed today, but thank you very much for taking all the time to talk about all those many things. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Yeah, and if people want to hear more from you or uh, see what you're up to, uh, how can they find you? How can they hear you? How can they see what you're doing? Uh, They can find uh, my podcast anywhere you get your podcast from called Orange Slices. Uh, On social, we are Slice at Slice of Soccer. Um, and you can follow me on my personal platforms at Heath Pierce. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to be able to secure those. Just had to, you know, give a few things to a few people that had them before me. But now, you know, everything's Heath Pierce instead of having to rattle off the nine different handles that I used to have. Oh, nice. <laughs> you're not, you're not Heath Pierce, one, two, three, four, five, six. No, no. I mean, I definitely have those accounts too. Those are my burners. And those okay. are the ones that like, if you ever, ever, uh, talk poorly about the real Heath Pierce, uh, those fan accounts that are also owned by me. Uh, tend to attack uh, and attack in large numbers of, you know, everything from one, two, three, four, five uh, to every variation of, you know, name, uh, number, uh, uh, you know, kind of egg shaped uh, profile picture. I appreciate that. I appreciate the Heath Pierce uh, bot army. Yeah. Heath, once again, thank you so much for, uh, for, for, I think, threatening the listeners at the uh-huh. end, but also for talking about uh, all the many things. Thank you. Uh, listeners, thank you all so much for listening. And we'll be back with you all again uh, real soon. 